Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Hey everybody, if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. If you've been following along in this series, you know that we've been in the Gospel of John for the last seven weeks. And today we have the chance to go all the way back to the second book in our Bible, to Exodus. Uh, We have been exploring the seven I am statements of Jesus and really the essence of this series, the reason why we wanted to spend two months here is because we wanted to not only learn more about Jesus, but that we would want to know Jesus for who he truly is, for his power, for his magnificence, for his glory. And on account of encountering Jesus, we would fall down and worship him as the Lord of life. And I thought it would be very fitting for us in in how we end this series to go back to Exodus 3 because this is the first account, the very first time we hear the statement, I am. And so in reality, what we find is that Exodus chapter 3 is the foundation of everything that we've been learning for the last two months. It's going to help us understand more fully why Jesus says what he says. It's also going to help us understand why the religious leaders in the original context had such a visceral reaction to Jesus' comments. See, it's not just about the radical statements, as radical as they are. But it has everything to do with the original context, with the foundation that's been laid all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. And as I've shared with you before, I want to say one more time, our hope and our prayer for you, what we've been praying about as as pastors and staff and, and elders, is that on account of this series, on account of seeing Jesus for who he truly is, that you would get off the fence that you would stop admiring Jesus and that you would worship Jesus, that you would make him 
everything in your life. And so that's what our prayer is for you. And and hopefully today, as we explore Exodus chapter 3, you once again can catch a glimpse of who God is. Let's take a look at this. Exodus chapter 3. If you grew up in the church, you probably know this story. If you haven't grown up in church, you probably still know this story. It's the story of the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a burning bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought to himself, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the, bur- the bush does not burn up. <laughs> Love this story. What, what a classic example of someone, Moses, who knows all about God. He's a Hebrew. He, he knows the God Yahweh, and yet it's not until he encounters him in the form of a burning bush does he truly know God, because that's the way it is with God. It's kind of like fire. Uh, who here, by a show of hands, uh, loves fireworks? I can tell you as I'm looking around at this auditorium, not a single hand is down. Amazing. We all love fireworks, don't we? And why is it that on the 1st of July, right around the corner, we're going to have the opportunity to watch fireworks? Why is it that the vast majority of us, we don't stay in our house? We go off into our local neighborhood or our local city, into the city square, and we watch the fireworks, even though the vast majority of us, we don't live in Toronto, we don't live in Vancouver or Montreal, where some of the best fireworks are, or in New York on July 4th, where the best fireworks are, and yet we still go outside of our house and we watch something that isn't as good as what we could watch on national television. Why do we do that? Because we all know that fireworks aren't fireworks until you can smell them going off, right? You watch that that tiny little speck go up into the air and you know it's coming. And yet the boom always gets you every single time. It causes your heart to stutter and it causes it to leap with joy. And that's what excites us about fire. And the interesting thing here is that God is constantly in the business of describing himself as fire. If you're familiar with scripture, there's Genesis chapter 15 in which God appears to Abraham in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. And then here in Exodus chapter 3, we see that God reveals himself as a burning bush. And then later on in Exodus, we find out that he reveals himself as a pillar of fire. And two more times before Exodus finishes, he is going to reveal himself in the form of fire. God is constantly revealing himself as fire. It causes me to think of Hebrews chapter 12, which says, Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And so one of the questions we, we might be asking ourselves is, why does God reveal himself in this way? Of all the ways that God could describe himself, of all the ways he could reveal himself to us, why is it that he chooses fire? 
And there might be a lot of reasons for this, but let me just provide one to you. When you think of all other elements, you think about water or dirt or clay, you know that all of those things are, are malleable. They can be affected, they can be changed, they can be contained, they can be moved around. And yet we know that with fire, that is not the case. Fire is unyielding. You can put your hands in water, you can put your hands in clay, you can put your hands in dirt, you can try to move it around, but you know that if you put your hand in fire, the only thing that's going to yield is your hand. And so that's what we learn about the character of God. Fire burns you, it consumes you, it melts you, it devours you. God cannot be moved. He cannot be changed. He will not yield. Always, 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 fire is in the business of yielding the things that come into contact with it. And so that's an essential element of the character of God. The first thing that Moses needs to recognize about who God is, is that he is a consuming fire. And so here we see Moses, he's a Hebrew, and he he comes into contact with this unyielding God, and we know that this is a very low time for Moses. We know that he has hit rock bottom. How do we know that? It starts off in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. If your Bibles are open, take a look again here. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Did you catch it? Two things that we need to know that that reveal that in his mind's eye, he has hit rock bottom. The first one is that he's tending to sheep, and we're going to find out in just a moment why that's so important. And the second one is that he's living with his (laughs) father-in-law. Every adult man's dream, right? And I can tell you even from personal experience, I lived with my in-laws for four months, and even though I have the best father-in-law, he is an incredible man, there's just something about being an adult man living in your in-law's basement that really is discouraging, and it really doesn't bolster the confidence. And here's Moses. He's got a rags-to-riches story. He was a little baby boy, a Hebrew boy in Egypt, and Pharaoh issued a decree that all two-year-old boys and younger are going to be put to death. And this Hebrew mother, who does not want to see her son die, she hopes against hope and she takes her son, she puts him in a basket and she wraps him up and she sends him down the Nile River in a prayer that someone would find this little baby would take pity on him and would care for him. And that's exactly what happens. And Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of Pharaoh, finds this little boy and she calls him Moses because I took him out of of the Nile River and she cares for him. Not only that, she allows Moses' biological mother to wean the child and then he comes back to the city square. He comes back to the headquarters of Egypt and that's where he's raised. So he's a Hebrew Egyptian, and he is well-respected, he is well-loved, he has an incredible, bright, hope-filled future, and then one day he throws it all away. He sees an Egyptian 
who's beating up a Hebrew slave, a regular occurrence. But on this day, he says to himself, enough is enough. On this day, he says, that is one of my people. That's what scripture says. That is one of my people. He takes matters into his own hands. He kills the Egyptian. He hides him in the sand. And then out of fear of his own life, he runs out into the wilderness. He finds a little village called Midian. And there he lives out the rest of his days. A rags to riches, back to rags kind of story. Oh, and by the way, in Egyptian culture, tending sheep is the most despicable, the lowest of low jobs. And the reason we know this, we can go back to the book of Genesis chapter 46. It says, every shepherd is detestable to the Egyptians. So we have Moses, this war general, this Hebrew-turned-Egyptian, this supposed Messiah who who will overthrow the Egyptians and free the Hebrews. And now he's off in Midian, living with his father-in-law, tending to his sheep. And that is where God meets him in this story. Look again at verses 2 and 3 says this, there an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, and Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought to himself, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. I mean, what would you do? You see this bush, it's on fire, but it's not burning. Of course you go and take another look at it, don't you? That's what I would do. And then verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush saying, Moses, Moses. Every single time in scripture when we see the name used twice, it's a, a token of intimacy. We think of Jesus when he's on the cross. He calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's uh, seeking closeness with God. Or when Jesus is rebuking Martha because she's angry with her sister and she's not in the kitchen, he tenderly says to her, Martha, Martha. And here, the Lord of the universe says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. God says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I think oftentimes when when we see this passage, we kind of have in mind this view that it's kind of like a hallmark picture. The place where you are standing is holy ground. But what God is really saying is, stop, Moses. Your life is in jeopardy, Moses. Don't come any closer, Moses. You have come into contact with the magnificent God of the universe. The way that I put it in your note sheet is this. What God is saying is, I am holy. I am holy. We serve a holy God. The reason he reveals himself in fire is to reveal his holiness, his transcendence, his magnificent power, his his otherness. And that's the first thing that Moses needs to know about the Lord of the universe. It's the first thing that you and I need to know about the Lord of the universe. And I think the big question that that we can ask ourselves is, do we view God that way? 
Do we have the same vision of God that causes our face to tremble and to turn away like Moses does in verse 6? Is that what happens in our heart of hearts? I think, for instance, of what we learn in Proverbs chapter 9. I don't have it here on the screen, I guess. (laughs) I thought I did, but I don't. Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do we have that kind of perspective where God says, fear me, know me, I am holy. Do we have that perspective? God says, there's a couple things that you need to know about me, Moses. I am the real creator God. I'm not like all the gods you grew up with in Egypt, uh, the god Ra and the god Baal and the supposed demigod Pharaoh and Ramses. I'm not like any of those gods because none of them are gods. I am the one true God, the creator of the universe, the one who set the sun and the moon and the stars into motion who created everything that you can see, I am the true God, and I am holy. Is that the perspective that we have of God? Does it cause us to tremble? But here's the second thing that we see about God. He says, I am compassionate. Look at verse 7, if your Bibles are open. He says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And so God, he's he's indicating to us a sense of closeness that he has with the people of, 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 of the Hebrews. That, that he understands their suffering, that he knows their suffering, that he suffers alongside of them. And that's why he says what he says next. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So at this point, Moses is pumped. He's animated. He's excited. He says, yes, God, you are going to deliver the Hebrews. That's the reason why I murdered the Egyptian, because I saw the injustice and I was so overwhelmed with it and I was so angry about it that I put that man to death. And so finally, God, after so many years, almost 500 years, you're going to free the the people of Israel from their oppression, give them a land of their own. The prophecy is going to be revealed. Great job, God. I'm going to get up on a hillside. I'm going to grab some popcorn, and I'm just going to watch everything unfold. And then God says this. See now, verse 10. See now, I am sending who? I'm sending you, Moses. Wait, what? What? You're sending me? Yes, I'm sending you, Moses. He says, you got the wrong guy. I'm I'm not eloquent. I I can't talk very well. I'm wanted for murder there. I I am not the the right candidate for this position. God, clearly you've made some sort of mistake. I love what you're planning on doing and freeing the people of Israel from their oppression, giving them a land to call their own. All of that is great, but you have chosen the wrong guy. And what does God say? Does, Does God say, oh, Moses, of course you're the right person. 
Of course you're the successful candidate. In fact, I did a Myers-Briggs inventory in heaven. You know what I discovered? You have the 12 healthy habits of a highly influential and successful person. You are gifted, Moses. You have every single gift up the wazoo. You are the ideal candidate for this position. Does God say that? No, he doesn't say that. In fact, he says exactly the opposite. Moses says, I'm nothing special. And God says, I know. (laughs) I know. I know that, Moses. Do you think that's a surprise to me? But here's the thing that you have to recognize. My calling in your life has nothing to do with your gifts and abilities, your strength, your prowess, your beauty, your complexity. It has nothing to do with that, Moses. And it has everything to do with your obedience. Because what God needs in Moses' life and in my life and in your life more than anything is obedience. That's what God needs more than anything. And so God says, Verse 12, here's why you don't need to be anything special. Here's why you don't need to be the most eloquent communicator. Here's why you don't need to be the most influential person to start this movement. Verse 12, because I will be with you. God says, I've I've already given you my resume, Moses. I've already highlighted to you who I am and what I can do. I am the creator of the universe, Moses. I don't need your gifts and abilities, Moses. And what he says is, I have chosen you not because you are the best candidate, but because my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, it doesn't matter what's on your resume. You won't be delivering my people through your power, but I will be delivering my people through my power, and you are my vessel. Skills are not required. All that is required is your obedience. And so then Moses, he says, all right, but God, can, can you show me a sign? Can you give me some sort of down payment? Can you kind of prove what is going to happen here so that I can just know that I'm not going to like, you know, kind of put myself at risk on account of what you're planning on doing? Can you show me a sign? And here's what God says, verse 12. He says, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Here's the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, I don't know about you, but as far as confirmations go, that one is pretty weak. It's kind of like if uh, someone comes up to you and they ask for a loan for $200,000 and you say, okay, I'll give you that loan, but how do I know you're going to pay me back? And they say, when I pay you back, then you'll know. Right? Not a whole lot of confirmation there that requires a high level of trust, doesn't it? And so what God says is, yeah, you're going to go to Egypt, you're going to risk your own life, and what you don't even know yet is there's going to be plagues, and Pharaoh's going to want to kill you, and then finally he's going to let the people go, and then you're going to go out into the wilderness, and then Pharaoh's going to have second thoughts, and he's going to try and kill you, then all the people of Israel are going to say, why did you bring us out in here to the wilderness? Are you trying to kill us, Moses? And then they're going to want to kill Moses, then they're going to go through the Red Sea, then they're going to be delivered, and they're going to be happy for a while, but then they're going to be angry again because they're hungry and thirsty and tired. They're going to want to go back to Egypt, and then they're going to want to kill Moses and finally they're going to get to the mountain. And while they're at the mountain, they're going to do some despicable things. 
but then you will see that you will worship me here again on this mountain. That's the only confirmation he receives. That's all that he knows. So in light of that, Moses says, okay, you're going to send me. Your promise is you're going to be with me. You're going to meet me here again on this mountain. I, I understand all those things, but, but the Egyptians, they're going to want some ID. Who are you? What should I call you? What's your name? And here's what God says, verse 14. Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. Circle, highlight, underline, exclamation point, squiggly mark. All right, this is the the key of everything that's happening in this chapter. God says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. (laughs) Moses must have been a little bit disappointed. All the gods in Egypt had some pretty remarkable names with monikers that would evoke just amazing images right, of floods and fire and thunder and storms and clouds and all these kinds of things. And and Moses says, you sound like a pretty powerful God. What's your name? And he says, I am who I am. Another way that you could say this is, I am the only one who is. You could even add to that, I am the only one who is. I'm the only one who was. And I'm the only one who ever will be. That's what he is saying here when he says, I am who I am. Now, picture in your mind for a moment, if you were an Egyptian and you worship hundreds of different gods, thousands of different gods, and Moses, he comes up to you and he says, I have a message from God. And they say, all right, which God are you referring to? And Moses says, the name of this God is the one and only God. Do you think they might be a little bit offended at that kind of name? Do you think they might be a little bit perturbed by what Moses has just said? The one and only God, the only one who was, the only one who is, the only one who ever will be, that stands in opposition to everything that they believe, and that's what he says. That's what he's seeking to communicate. And again, it's not just something that's for now. It's something that is forever. It's not like a political election cycle where you have one candidate who's in power, but then they fall, and then another candidate who comes into power, and they reign for a time, and then they fall. No, I am the one true God forever and always and all the years to come. That's what he's communicating to Moses. Parents, have, have you ever had this time in your life where uh, kids, your, your own children, would come up to you and they might say, Daddy, Mommy, who made God? Every child asks that question. Who made God? And that might cause you to tremble a little bit because you have kids of a certain age who are asking a lot of difficult questions. But in your wisdom, you'll say, no one made God. God always was, he always is, and he always will be. I have a distinct memory as a child. I was around seven, 
And again, times when I was eight and nine where I would lie awake at night and I would think about the first four words of Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God. And it would cause me to tremble. I, I tremble still thinking about this, that, that we serve a God who never had a beginning. To use an apologetics term, a philosophical term, we're all wondering together, what is that first thing? What is that primal cause? What is the thing that started everything? And what God says to Moses right here is, I am who I am. I am the one who started everything. And when I think about that reality, it causes me to tremble. It causes me to fear the Lord. This mind-bending reality, something that I can't fully understand, this fourth-dimensional truth that, that in my brain I, I can't get it, I don't understand it. How does that work? And that's what Moses says right here. And it causes him to be afraid. And so God, he, he builds his name, the, the Hebrew name Yahweh, Yahweh means I am and I always will be. And so his name that is highlighted in scripture over 4,500 times, every single time someone says the Lord, Yahweh, every time his name is mentioned, it brings to mind this reality that God was, he is, and he always will be. There's never been a time when God was not. There never will be a time when God will not be. That's the type of God that we serve. Every single time that, that we say hallelujah, when we sing songs that use that word, do you know what that means? It means praise the one who is. Hallelujah, Yahweh. That's what the highlight is there. So praise the I am. Praise the one who is and one will be. That is what we are highlighting every single time we communicate that word. And do you know what's so remarkable about all of this in light of our I Am series? Jesus uses that exact same phrase every single time he makes his I Am statement. So let me just give you a little bit of context here to, to fully encapsulate and understand what is happening in the first century context. See, 250 years before Jesus was born, Jewish scholars got together and they took the, what we call the Old Testament and they translated it from its original Hebrew language into the Greek language, and that's what we call the Septuagint. And so for the last 250 years, every single time they read Exodus chapter 3 and many, many, many other passages like it, whenever they came across those words, I am, they would always read this, ego, imi. Ego, imi. And so when they're thinking about God and who he is and who he was and how he always will be, they're always thinking, ego, imi. And then, uh, when we see Moses, when he says, what shall I call you? God says, ego, imi. I am the Lord. 
the, fa- the God and father of your forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then this upstart rabbi named Jesus, he comes along many, many years later, and he's having a heated debate with the religious leaders. He's been making some radical statements about himself, and they are ready to kill him. They're ready to stone him. And they say to him, you are demon-possessed. And they ask him a question, do you think you're better than Abraham? And do you know what Jesus says? Before Abraham existed, ego imi. See, here's what we have to see about what is happening here. It's not just about the radical statements, as radical as they are, right? They're causing religious leaders to want to stone him and kill him. They're having a visceral reaction. They are angry with Jesus. But it's not just about the radical, absurd statements that a 33-year-old man can say before Abraham existed centuries upon centuries ago, ego imi, I am. It's not just about the statements where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not just about the statements, but it's about the very foundation of these two words. You see, if if you have a, a close Jewish friend, you know that even to this day, the vast majority of them refuse to use the name of the Lord. They refuse to say Yahweh. And so they have stand-ins. They'll say things like Adonai or Elohim or Kurios. They'll use those words, but they will not say Yahweh because it is a sacred and holy name and we will not say something so sacred. It will not come from our lips. And here comes along Jesus and he not only says the words, but he says it is everything about me. And now we see why Jesus produces such a radical, visceral reaction from the Jewish leaders. He claims divinity. He claims lordship. He says everything that is happening in Exodus chapter 3, where the Lord of the universe says, Ego e me, he says, it's all about me. And so once again, I say to you, dear listener, if I could come through that screen and talk to just you for a moment, that is the reason why we can't sit on the fence with Jesus. That's the reason why God always produces a visceral response. That is the reason why if if you believe in the words of Jesus, it should cause you to weep and to take off the shoes on your feet and to fall down and worship him or else you don't believe in what you should do at this very moment is you should turn off the TV, you should turn off the computer and say, what a bunch of bogus shenanigans, what a bunch of silliness. Because that's the way it is with Jesus. You can't be in the middle. You can't emulate him as some sort of great moralistic teacher. He is either the Lord of the universe or he isn't. And so we must make our choice. But if you do step over that line to follow ego e me, the great I am, to follow Jesus, then this is what Jesus says to you. He says, I am in the habit of using unremarkable people for miraculous things. Look again at verse 12. 
Moses, he's, he's questioning God's selection, right? He's, he's questioning whether or not God has made the right decision. He says, I am not an articulate man. I am not gifted enough. I am not well-spoken. I don't have the leadership skills in order to inspire a movement to cause an entire nation to leave Egypt, even if there's good intentions. God, clearly you've made the wrong choice. And what we have to see is God, he never takes your face and puts them in his hands and says, oh, Justin, of course you're a great leader. Of course, you're everything you need to be. You have leadership skills up the wazoo. You are the ideal candidate. God doesn't say anything like that. No, in fact, he says the very opposite thing. He says, I know you can't do it on your own, but my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. It is not about your gifts and abilities. It is about my strength. Remember what we learned last week? Remember the glove and the hand? If you haven't watched that, you can go back and watch it a little bit later. It's not about the glove. It's about the hand inside the glove. It has everything to do with what God is able to do. It has nothing to do with your own gifts and abilities. And that is the message that Moses needed to hear. It's the message that I need to hear. Perhaps it's the message that you need to hear too. And so, you could say, God, I'm, I'm not good enough. And, and you know what God says? He says, I am. Say, God, I'm not successful enough. God says, I am. I'm not beautiful enough. I am. I'm not skilled enough. I am. And at some point or another, we have to believe what God says or not. Do you believe that God is able to do miraculous things through me and through you, broken vessels though we are? Or you, you might be on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. You, you could say to yourself, Justin, I understand that that's important for some people, but I am an inherently good person. I'm a good person. And the only question I can ask you is by what standard? I think of what the Apostle Paul says. He says, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. We learn in the Heidelberg Catechism that each and every one of us, we have a natural tendency to hate God and our neighbor. That is our standard position. We are not good. And that's a humbling reality for each and every one of us. Have you ever felt outside of your element? Have you ever felt like you don't belong? Have you ever felt like you've been put in a position that you are unworthy of? I remember when I became a pastor at the age of 25. You know what my first thought was? Even Jesus waited until he was 30 to start his earthly ministry. God, who am I? <laughs> Why would you call me to this kind of task? God, I, I clearly don't have the abilities yet. I'm not wise enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not smart enough. And God says to me, and he repeatedly says to me, I know, Justin, but I am. I am. And it's a message that I need to be reminded of day after day after day. And maybe, just maybe, you need to hear that too. That's what God says to you. He says, I am. And so I'm reminded that 
in Scripture that, that God uses murderers like Moses and David. He uses prostitutes like Rahab. He uses screw-ups like Peter. He uses doubters like Thomas. And at one point in time, he even used the mouth of a donkey to communicate his word. And do you know what that means? It means, I qualify. (laughs) So do you. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. We're going to wrap up here in just a moment, but there's one more thing that that I think is important to highlight here before we close. So if your Bible's still open, look at verse 15. God says this to Moses. Say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Then look at verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel. Together say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me. And so numerous times in the last 16 verses, repeatedly God is using this language, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why does he keep saying that? Why does he keep saying it over and over and over and over and over again? Here's why. See, when, when we hear preaching, I think oftentimes we want to learn something new, right? And, and hopefully you do learn something new from time to time. And yet what God is highlighting here to Moses, to a Hebrew man who understands the history of what God has done to his people, what he is highlighting here is a remarkable truth. That oftentimes what we need more than anything isn't some new, remarkable statement that we've never heard before. It's that we need to be reminded of something we already know. Something we already know in our head, but at some point in time it hasn't made the 12-inch journey into our hearts. And we simply need to be reminded of it once again. And so God, he's, he's highlighting everything that he has done for their forefathers, for Abraham, for Isaac, and for Jacob. And they know the stories. And so even in a time of doubt, they are reminded of the faithfulness and the providence of God. That's what God is doing. Do you know the faithfulness of God even in the moments of uncertainty? Even in the moments of doubt? Even in those critical moments in your life, like Moses, who is hanging on by a thread, will I make the decision to obey the Lord, or will I go my own way? And I have doubts, I have concerns, I'm bewildered, I'm afraid, I don't think I'm the right choice, and God says, I know, I know, I know, I know, but I will do amazing things through you, my vessel. And so will we continue to trust in God, even in the midst of our own uncertainty? And so here's what Jesus says to you and to me. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the sheep gate. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And before Abraham was, I am. Ego imi. And my hope and my prayer for you is that these would be more than just words to you. That you wouldn't just hear these things as kind of lip service to God. But that you would encounter Jesus for who he truly is. And that it would melt your heart. That it would change your perspective. That you would behold Jesus for who he truly is. Please, please, please. 
don't accessorize Jesus. Don't add him to your life. Make him your life. Don't give lip service to Jesus and call him the foundation of your life. And yet, if you, if you think of this metaphor of a house, we enjoy good food in the kitchen. We enjoy family in the living room. We enjoy sex in the bedroom. We enjoy a TV in the TV room. All those things while paying no attention to the very foundation of our life. The temptation here, let me just say this to you once again, I'm not even as concerned about people who might write off everything that I'm saying right now, everything that's highlighted in scripture, because something still needs to happen in their hearts. My concern is for people who are watching right now, who are giving lip service to Jesus, but he is not the foundation of your life. He's an add-on to your life. He's a, a convenient addition that you use on Sundays and perhaps even once a week on, on weekdays. But he isn't the Lord of your life. And so my, my hope and my prayer for you is that, like Doubting Thomas, who says, I will not believe unless I have an encounter with Jesus until I can put my own fingers in his hands and his feet and his side. I won't believe until I see that and he sees Jesus and he bows down and he worships. Or Moses, who is a Hebrew of Hebrews, and yet he, he believes about God, but he doesn't fully know God until he encounters God at the burning bush. He takes off the sandals on his feet and he bows down and worships. I hope that you can have that encounter with God too. That you would see him for who he is and that you would get off that fence. Don't make him an addition to your life. Don't make him the add-on in your life. Make him your life. The Lord says to you, I am who I am. I always was. I am. And I always will be. I hope that you see that anew today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that, that we would get a vision for who you are, that you would melt our hearts, that we would worship you, that we would see you for who you are. And Lord, we repent of the ways that, that we have simply been giving lip service to you. We've been saying the right things and acting the right way. But we know that in our heart of hearts, we are dry and weary. Give us a vision for who you truly are. Help us to make you the Lord of our life, to worship you in spirit and in truth. So Lord, do a good work in us as your church, as a gateway family and guests who are tuning in that you would draw us closer to you and closer to one another on account of who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are the great I am. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. Enjoy the fireworks. Stay safe.